Thank you, guys. That was great. Thanks for leading us in worship. As we continue in worship uh, before the Lord, um, I hope you had a great break. Those of you that were here the first semester, those of you that were in internships or something, welcome back. New students, you know, shout out to you. Thanks for being here today. You know, it's great to speak early in the semester when you're all trying to, you know, accumulate your chapel credits and you're all here, so that's great. Um, hope you're braving the cold, you know, bundle up, stay warm, let's not have any incidents. Uh, what would you say that the Christian life boils down to? Now, if we had text messaging up, available up here, we could, uh, you know, put your texts up there, but when it, when it all boils down to something and you have to say, it, this is what it is, what would that be? Um, let's see if this works. Oh, okay. Get over there. I'm going to try to simplify it for you this morning. Not that Albert Einstein said anything simple. I really don't understand how he could have made this quote because I can't really understand much of what he wrote or said. But he said, if you can't figure it out simply or state it simply, you haven't figured it out or understood it well enough yet. So here's what Augustine said in the 4th century. He said, love God and do what you please. Okay, that's it? Love God and do as you please? That's simple enough, isn't it? Uh, well, it's not. Not simple enough? Oh, how do I love God? You might ask. Well, it's interesting. Mark chapter 12 tells us how to love God. In fact, Jesus tells us how to love God. Over here. There we go. Jesus was asked one day by a lawyer, you know, what, what is it all about? How would you put it together? How would you describe what it really means, uh, you know, to be, at that point, not a Christian, right, but to, to really uh, understand God? And this is what he says, right? The most important commandment, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well, that's pretty simple. Love God and love your neighbor. So let's unpack that a little bit today. How do you love God? You love God in four ways here, right? You love God with all of your heart. You love God with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. What does it mean to love God with all your heart? That's a good question. I think what it means is that we love God from the inside out. That deep within us, our affections, our desires, our focus, our priorities, our motivations, our choices, our decisions spring from a deep love for God. That there are no rivals to his throne inside of you. That you are not diverted toward other things that would want your heart. That you are committed to God from the heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Proverbs tells us to guard your hearts because all the issues of life flow out of your heart. 
There are some rivals to our heart, to God's love in our heart. I'll give you some of mine, and I'm going to pick on some others. I'll tell you one of the rivals in my heart, and that is sports. Now, sports is kind of a Christian rival to God, right? Because it's a pretty good rival. Uh, Most of us enjoy sports. I love sports. I have watched part of or all of 10 football games this year. How many of you can beat that? Okay, a few up in the corner. Good. I know, the, I know who you guys are. All right. I love football. Now, I don't like it that Indianapolis came back from a 38 to 10 uh, <laughs> deficit and beat uh, the only team that I really cared about in the playoffs. But I love sports. I love watching sports. I used to love to play sports. I don't get into fantasy sports, but some of you that are in fantasy sports, you've got to really watch out because that's a, that's a total rival to the love of God in your heart. Um, I, how about games? Um, I'll tell you one of the games I like. I like Sudoku. If I fly somewhere, I get that uh, magazine out of the packet or the little uh, packet in front of me. I pull it out. I usually play the Mensa game. I play Sudoku. uh, And I go home and I play websudoku.com. Have you found that? That's great. My sister, uh, she has these like brain teaser magazines and does those. Uh, My brother plays uh, word games or Scrabble with his children online from a distance. My wife likes Candy Crush. (laughs) She's pretty good. What level are you at? 50-something? 93, she's at. Okay. So she didn't just start yesterday, right? Some of you like PS3 or, if you're lucky, PS4, right? You know, and what I'm suggesting is that can be a rival in our hearts. Some of you are into pornography. Pornography can be a rival in your heart because it does all of these things. But I'm going to drop you down to the bottom too because what pornography can do is it can addict you in such a way that it is it distracts your attention from higher order pursuits and it, it, it is in a diversion that hijacks your heart. Yeah, it has all those other factors. I have a friend who in high school, unknown at this time or at that time to me, was got into pornography. He went to a Christian college. He graduated from that Christian college and got married. He started a family. He went in and did some graduate education. He was on staff at a church. He ended up going overseas as a missionary. And it was only 10 or 12 years after he got addicted to pornography that it came out. You can do that in your heart and not even share it with anybody else. And nobody here might know who you are that is addicted to pornography. But it is a rival to the love of God in your heart. Okay, I need to spring the letter. How many of you read the screw tape letters? How many? Oh, you got to get this book. It's a short one. It's a really cool book. 
Basically, Screwtape is an older demon, and he is training in a younger demon named Wormwood. And he gives Wormwood some tips and tricks of the trade, if you will, of being a good demon, of how to derail somebody who's a new Christian. And so the book is about a new Christian who had just come to the Lord in about you know, less than six weeks ago. And the book talks about the strategies that Screwtape is giving to Wormwood about how to derail this new Christian. I am going to spend a couple minutes reading a portion of chapter 12 with you today. Dear Wormwood, as habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego. In other words, you enjoy them less, but you engage in them more. For that is what habit fortunately does to a pleasure. You will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong. And nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why, in the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, in drumming of fingers and kicking of heels and whistling tunes that he doesn't like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which, once chance association has started them. He just happened on to this. The creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like young, all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. God, of course, is the enemy, right? It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. How do we love the Lord? We love him from the heart where there are no other rivals, even good rivals, even Christian rivals, even safe rivals. Right? Even things that we can talk about can rival the place of God in our hearts. Not the spectacular sins, but the small ones. So loving God out of all of our heart, that's how we love God. The second way that we love God is out of our soul. With all of our soul, the scripture says. This is the word called suke or psych, from which we get psychology. It really means to be alive, to be a living being. And there's a lot that's written about the soul, but Genesis chapter 2 basically says it this way, God formed man out of the dirt from the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man came alive, a living soul. How do we love God from our soul? I, I would suggest to you that uh, we might call the soul our personality. It's what makes you you. 
It's the way that you relate to the world. It's the way that you externalize. It's the way that you express yourself in a relationship. It's, it's your social style. It's, it's what makes you, you. And God has made you different from me and made me different from you. And we each have different personality patterns. It's interesting, uh, as you go through psychology or as you go into job interviews, you will be analyzed uh, by people to try to figure out what is your style, what, how do you relate, what is your personality, what is your soul. One of the best books um, that I found a 30-page little nugget, and uh, Jay Steele, I don't know if you're here, but you put me onto this, and I want to thank you for that. It's a book called An Invitation to a Journey, a Roadmap for Spiritual Formation by Robert Mulholland, who I think at one point was the president of Asbury College. But the, rela- but the theme of this book is the relationship between personality and piety, between what we are and how we relate to God and others. Now, this has also been picked up, or he, what he does is he picks up kind of the Myers-Briggs uh, uh, Temperament indicators. Are any of you familiar with the Myers-Briggs? Anybody taken that? Okay, good. So some of you have a context for this. But what the Myers-Briggs does is it breaks your personality or your soul, if you will, into four different contrasting uh, preferences. They're not right or wrong. They're just different ways that you relate to the world and, and other people. You might be more extrovert or you might be more introvert. That's the one over to the left. So you might be a person who loves to talk it out and be with people and externalize, or you might be somebody that's more wanting to think it through and be private. The second one is to be sensing how do you take in information? Do you take it in through, your, uh, through specific sensory uh, interactions with the world, or are you more of a big-picture, intuitive person? Is that how you interact with information coming your direction? The third is how do you make decisions? Maybe you're very logical. Maybe you make lists of pros and cons and you think out the implications of what you do before you do it. Or maybe you kind of make decisions from your gut and you feel it out and you maybe uh, don't think so much about it as, as to feel through it. And then the last one is how do you organize your life? Some people are just, they make lists they, are, they love to get closure. They love to finish through a project. Others love the process and they smell the roses and we might call those people more perceiving kinds of people. Now with these four kind of descriptors or categories of personality, you can make 16 different basic personality types, right? You could be an ESTJ, or you could be an INFP, or you could be an ENTJ, or you could be an ISTJ. So you can make 16 different categories. Now what this book does, what Mulholland does, is he basically says how we love God is related in some fashion to the kind of personality that God has given to us, and that we have... um, cultivated in our life. So each of us prefers in our personality to be a a certain kind of one of these 16 different types. So maybe you naturally prefer to be an introvert 
But in certain circumstances and situations, you can be an extrovert. I have found that some Bible teachers, many Bible teachers, tend, even though they can be extroverted, they tend to be what I would call an INTJ. And an INTJ is a little bit more thinking. They love diagramming. They love closure. Uh, they like big picture. And they love to kind of um, structure the way that we approach God. And because that's often true, you've probably uh, come across people who indicate a certain kind of spirituality that's related to their personality. In other words, they get up in the morning at 6 o'clock and have their quiet time. I was in a roommate situation at Crown with a person like that, and I, I loved Doug, but I hated Doug because I'm just not a 6 o'clock in the morning, get up and read my Bible, pray kind of guy. That just is not my personality. It's hard for me if that is the norm of how I have to relate to God. I have set myself up for failure if that's the only way that I can express my love to God through my personality. See what I'm saying? What I would suggest to you is that God is big enough for you to express your love to him through your personality in ways that make sense for you. Not that you don't want to discipline yourself on ways that don't make sense for you. We have a shadow side of our lives. We have a dark side. I might be more E and less I, and I need to develop the I so that I can appreciate experiencing God in ways that I might not naturally do so. But here's what I think it means to love God with all of our soul, is to figure out who you are and to revel and enjoy God the way that he has made you to enjoy him. And that's okay. You do not have to enjoy and revel in God's presence and love him in exactly the same ways that I do. And when I make my ways of loving God the absolute for you, I've set you up for failure unless you're exactly like I am. So you're free to love God with all of your soul, with all of your personality. We love God with all of our mind. It's the third way. Now, this, you're in college, so I hope this resonates with you. But we need Christians who love God with all of their mind. That your minds are renewed, that you can evaluate and distinguish between things that are right and wrong and good and bad and good and better and better and best. That you can take the big picture of God's word and what he is about, and apply it into the world where you want to make a difference. That you can solve problems creatively and systematically. That you will be the kind of person who can draw logical conclusions from what God says to the way the world is, to being able to do something about it. To put your mind to work for God. Life is full of difficult questions. And really hard problems. Almost never will you approach a situation or a problem with complete information or arrive at an easy solution. And if you do, I would watch out. So you need to love God with all of your mind, to train your mind to make a difference. 
there are all kinds of theological problems that still haven't been solved after thousands of years of thinking about God, of revelation from God, of having his scriptures in our language. Why would God create us with the capacity to screw things up so badly? In the face of religious pluralism today, how can we say that God, or that Jesus, is the only way to God and happiness and salvation and meaning and morality? How do we practice both a commitment to absolute truths and tolerate those who decide not to hold them? Yeah, get in trouble doing that in this culture, right? How do we do it? How do we think through those kinds of things? Economic problems. You know, extreme poverty in this world is described as a person who lives on a dollar and a quarter a day. It's actually gone down 29% over the last 30 years. And there are still 1.3 billion people in the world that live on a dollar and a quarter a day. How can we let the world be like that? We need people to think how to change those kinds of things. Wealth distribution in the United States if we don't want to go global. How are we to think when we learn that the top 1% of Americans make 24% of its income? When I graduated from Crown College, the top 1% of Americans made 9% of the income. Today it's almost three times that. They own 40% of the wealth, while the bottom 80% in our nation own 15% of the wealth. The average CEO in America makes more in an hour than his average employee makes in a month. The top 5% of Americans have accounted for 74% of the wealth gains over the last three decades. Actually, the, the bottom 60% of Americans have had a shrinkage in their wealth over the last three decades. Is this really the kind of capitalism we want to defend? I'm not a socialist. I am a capitalist. But is this the kind of capitalism we want to defend? Is there a better way to think? Is there some other way that you can put your mind to work to solve this kind of a problem? We have scientific problems. Cancers, diabetes, full-blown AIDS, epidemics, how to keep one step ahead of the bad guys so they don't hack our credit cards and they don't create nuclear weapons and biological agents to use on their own people. Or think of just aging, the issue of aging in America. There will be over 70 million people, 65 or above, 15 years from now. Fifteen years ago, there were half that many. What is this going to do to our culture? If I were in your shoes, I would worry about that. Because I would feel like the guy over here on the left side of the screen. Who's going to pay for all these people? How are those people going to live? How are they going to uh, achieve financial and economic security through their longer lives? Most of them may live into their 80s and 90s and hundreds. We have social problems, malnutrition, pollution. Sex trafficking is the most common form of modern-day slavery. 
Nearly 20 million adults and children are bought and sold every year in this world. What kind of thinking will it take to bring that kind of a life to an end? Love the Lord your God with all of your mind. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all of your strength. Our strength is our abilities, our talents, our gifts, our physical powers. You're at the peak of that or near the peak of that in your life right now. And we want to show up and strongly love the Lord our God with our accomplishments and our achievements and our capacities and our potentials. Not to settle, but to strain and to make every effort, Peter tells us in Second Peter, uh, to add to our faith the kinds of things that are necessary so that we can have a strong entrance into the kingdom of God on the last day. There is no such thing as effortless love for God. It's not a wishy-washy thing. Otherwise, we just become easy believers and shallow in our faith and disappointed with God and tepid in our testimonies and untested in our faith. And we become anemic Christian communities unless we love the Lord our God with all of our strength. Because fought for faith produces effective Christians. Now, I want to spend uh, about three minutes on the last of these two commands. The second command is to love others as ourselves. I want you to notice that it says that there are two commands, not three. And today you will come across a lot of literature that seems to give us three commands. That we love ourselves, and we love others, and we love God. Right? Because it says to love others as ourselves. It's an assumption here, but not a command, that we love ourselves. That a a healthy person looks out for their own welfare. Let me give you an example of what I think that means. There's something called attribution theory. I'm going to just, I said three minutes, I'll give you maybe four. So attribution theory, what causes a certain behavior, okay? So is it something within the person, in other words, does it arise from their own personality, or is it something that's caused outside the person, so their situation? Now I'll get you some examples of this in a minute. So an internal attribution is something that has to do with a person's disposition. It's the way that they are, okay? That's why I did it. It's who I am. Or an external attribution is usually described as something external to me, a situation, luck, something outside of me that I can't control. So you might say that you have a lot more control on the left side of making an attribution than you do on the right side. But... Social psychology is built off of something called the um, fundamental attribution error. And this is how that works. When I succeed, it's more likely due to the left side, my own dispositions. I caused myself to succeed. And when you succeed, I'm more likely to attribute your success to the right side. Oh, you got lucky. Or, you know, events just kind of fell in place for you. Uh, Or you were brought up with all the benefits of life, and how could you not succeed with all of that going for you, right? When I fail, it's more likely due to the situational factors. And when you fail, it's more likely due to your own disposition, to your own personality. You are more responsible for your failure than I am for my failure. And I am more responsible for my success than you are for your success. So, for example, you and a friend apply for the same job, 
You both get interviews, but your friend gets the job. You are more likely to attribute the fact that he got the job to external factors. He sucked up to the interviewer. He got lucky. You just had a bad day. You're actually glad you didn't get the job because you didn't want to work for that person anyway. You know, those kinds of things, right? You attribute your friend's success to external factors and your own failure um, to external factors. Or maybe, let's turn it around, you got the job. And you're more likely to attribute this to the fact that you prepared diligently, that you were actually the best candidate, that your work ethic shined through, and so forth. And your friend doesn't have the character qualities that you have. It's a good thing they didn't hire him because they would have found out you know, soon enough that they were pretty sorry to hire such an irresponsible person. And so the person's failure is due to their disposition and your success was due to your disposition. And I would suggest this. Test it out. To love somebody else as you love yourself is to jettison the fundamental attribution error. To give somebody else the same benefit, the same grace, the same slack that you give yourself. That maybe that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. I think there's more going on here, though, than just that. Love for God properly understood issues in love for others. It's not that I love myself, and that's why I want to love others. It's that I have so much loved God with my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength that it drives me to love others. The more I love God, the more I will love others. It's not the more that I love myself, the more I will love others. Nowhere in Scripture that I can recall are we led to believe that I need to love myself more so that I'll be in a better position to love others more. I'm quite often in Scripture led to believe that the more that I love God, the more likely I will be to value and prize and love others. I want to say one other thing in the last minute. The temptation you can fall into is this. You can focus on your relationship with God, loving God, in such a way that it becomes your own little private domain, personal devotions, separation from the world, purifying yourself from the stains of society, experiencing God for your own pleasure, consuming God for your own enjoyment. I am his and he is mine. Isn't it lovely just to have a personal relationship with God? This isn't right. This is not his intention. Loving God is an intensely personal affair. We love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. But it is not a private affair. No one else can love God for you. Not your spouse or your best friend or your roommate or a professor or your pastor or your mother. But you cannot love God and not love others. Jesus' love for the Father was not privately expensed. He poured himself out even as we sang this morning. So here's the deal. God invites you to love him and do as you please. He's called you to himself and equips you with the natural abilities and the grace gifts to express your love for him with all of your heart and, to, and all of your soul and all of your mind and strength and practical ways to make a difference in this world. That is his supreme command. 
and what he wants from us more than anything else, and consequently what he seeks in our lives more than anything else, is that we love him and inevitably love others. So love him from the inside out. According to your unique personality, let that drive your love for him. Devoting your whole mind to his regime and expensing every ounce of effort to love God. And you will love others as you do yourself. So this semester, let us be people of love. Love for God in a deeper way, fuller way, more of an all-in way. And love for one another because we'll have plenty of opportunities to either love one another or not love one another on campus this year. Father in heaven, we don't know best how to love you. We, we don't have it down yet. But we want to. So help us to not just think on us, but to think on how much you love us and how that would draw our love toward you. And grant, Lord, that as we do that, it is expressed in practical ways to one another that we might follow your command to love you and to love others. It's a big prayer, Lord, bigger than we're capable of. So by your Spirit, would you help us to do this uh, this year, this day, next hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Go on. Love God today.